From liberal politics to criminal opportunism, another roundup of answers to listeners' and patrons' questions. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Hello. So it's Sunday the 17th of July and welcome to the last of the current cycle of question and answer segments, which seems actually quite suitable in a way because in the moment there's something of a lull. Militarily, of course, there is this continuing hail of missile fire against Ukrainian cities. But apart from that, in many ways, what is clearly going on is that both sides are going through an operational regroup. We shall see, first of all, what kind of a force the Russians throw at trying to take the rest of the Donetsk, sorry, not Donbass, Donetsk region, in order precisely to consolidate their grip on the Donbass before autumn makes campaigning distinctly harder. Though I'm not sure actually how much resource and energy they've got. And likewise, after the rather flashy and frankly rather misleading suggestion that a million-man army was being prepared to allow Ukraine to recapture its uh, northern uh, coastline of the Azov Sea, that million-man army, it's basically worked out on the entire mobilisation strength of the country, plus the border guards, plus the police. So that also implies every single pen pusher in the Ministry of Defence, every single local cop and so forth was somehow able to be thrown into battle. It's not going to happen, but nonetheless, it does speak precisely to the Ukrainians' desire to firstly signal their defiance, signal their resolution, hopefully g up those in the West who might be feeling a certain degree of Ukraine fatigue, and also demonstrate a commitment to precisely not just withdrawing in good order, but actually being able to counterattack. But we'll wait and see, because at the moment that's not happening. And likewise, in Russia, there's something of a political lull. We were promised much from Friday's State Duma emergency session. We received very little. One of the interesting things to watch will be what happens to Dmitry Dragozin, who has been dismissed from his position as head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, And now there is all kinds of uh, different uh, speculation about the fact that he's going to be appointed curator or or overall chief of the occupied and in due course annexed Ukrainian territories, or even that he's going to be moving to a senior position within the presidential administration, perhaps even heading the presidential administration. To be perfectly honest, if it's the latter, then Ukraine and the West should rejoice. Because if he is half as effective at running the presidential administration the way he ran Roscosmos, then essentially the Russian state will collapse in no time at all. But I don't actually anticipate that happening. Again, though, you know, who knows? Russia can. We have discovered 
throw up surprises. Anyway, on to various questions that were sent in by my esteemed patrons, but also other listeners. And the first one is really about domestic politics. And generally speaking, the first half of this podcast will be largely domestic, though it's obviously these days very, very difficult to disentangle domestic and foreign policy. But that will be the focus of the first part, and then we'll move into more obviously things about foreign policy, which largely means the war. Anyway, in April and March, the president signed decrees giving regional governors more power to deal with local economic problems. And there's sort of talk of various initiatives by the Kursk and and Leningrad governors, you know, through meetings with Lukashenko about industrial partnership and that kind of thing. And at the same time, Putin gave a speech to the Duma saying precisely that he has authorised them to address issues relating to sanctions. And so the question is really whether or not power is being devolved as a result. And does that mean more or less opportunities for the security services? Well, to be honest, I would actually challenge the premise of the question here. My sense is that this is not about the devolution of power. This is about the devolution of responsibility, which again is the classic Putin model. It's very much what we saw when dealing with COVID, that things he didn't want to have to touch himself. He dumped on local governors without giving them necessarily more resources, but basically said, you deal with that. The the, uh, excuse, so say, or the rationale was that, well, each individual region has its own specific peculiarities and problems, and local administrations are best geared to deal with that, which is true up to a point, except that they were given very little flexibility. They still had to meet a whole variety of objectives that were set by the federal centre. And likewise with this, I mean, you know, we see the situation of, I've already mentioned it in past podcasts, about certain regions now essentially becoming the patrons of bits of Ukraine. So we have Beglov in St. Petersburg saying that now St. Petersburg will take the lead in helping to rebuild Mariupol. Good luck with that. And likewise, we have Sabyanin in Moscow saying that the city of Donetsk will be reconstructed in part with the assistance, and that means the money from Moscow. And we even now have the situation of local officials being expected to stump up the cash and generally put political resource behind establishing military units as well. Apparently, Moscow is now uh, providing assistance for what's known as Sabianin's regiment. I'm not entirely sure he'd be that happy with, with being so directly affiliated with it. But anyway, we clearly see the extent to which regions and important cities ones that are relatively rich or ones that are more dependent on federal budgets are now being expected to quote-unquote pull their weight. But look, this is not the devolution of power. This is actually the conscription of local authorities into the war effort. And in terms of the, the role for the security services, I mean, clearly it will give them some more leverage, anything that requires monitoring and supervision of the localities, but I don't really think it's a major factor. I think what this demonstrates is, once again, Putin using the same tactic, as I said, of of how he dealt with COVID, which is that he will dump responsibilities on others. If they fail, that's their fault, and they will be expected to pay the price thereof. If they succeed, well, it's a success for Putin's overall policies, and he will take the credit. So unlike other national leaders. But I think that's what's going on there. Moving on 
we've seen divisions in the Communist Party, and we have seen a whole variety of new parties being sort of stood up, or at least half stood up, you know, crouching. Where does that leave the traditional liberal opposition that in the past did receive a certain degree of tolerance, most particularly Jablaka? Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm tempted to say pretty much nowhere. I mean, Jablaka was already something of a, of a voice out in the wilderness. And with the astonishing capacity to divide amongst themselves that for so long has hobbled any attempt at liberal political opposition against the Putin regime, we actually have seen them quite interestingly make a specific point of actually trying to distance themselves from Navalny and his movement. Now look, now fine, there may be some political calculation behind this that is rather more than just preening vanity and simmering jealousy. But one would think, given that Navalny is behind bars and is not coming out anytime soon, he's not coming out so long as he's considered to be a threat to the regime. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure which one of us, whether Navalny or I, will actually set foot on uh, non-prison territory of, of, of Russia sooner. We'll have to wait and see. But anyway, there he is. His movement, the administrative structures of his movement have essentially been shattered. I mean, you know, the FSB went after them with, with, with gleefully vicious abandon. But nonetheless, the drivers, the ultimate sort of dissatisfactions, the coalition of the fed up is still there. And surely, surely it would make sense to try and find some kind of common cause with them. You don't have to actually say that you're a Navalnyite in order to reach out for that. But instead, what we have had is actually Yabloka seeming to go directly as if actually they're opposed specifically to Navalny. I mean, this is what Yavlinsky, um, you know, it's basically you know, one of its founders, said. We aren't going to pursue Navalny's politics. We aren't inviting his supporters onto our party lists. Those who want to vote for Navalny needn't vote for us. Now, look, seriously... I mean, it's one thing to say, look, Navalny has his own agenda and his own policies, and they're not ours. But to actually say, essentially, if you like Navalny, if you support Navalny, then go away. We don't want your vote. I mean, to me, that seems insane. I don't know if it's because they're just simply trying to distance themselves from Navalny because they think that's dangerous, because that means that they would lose it, what little last tolerance they have got. And to be perfectly honest, the tolerance they have now is the tolerance that you give to people who are just not even worth stepping on. But nonetheless, that, that, that seems to me deeply depressing, because again, it speaks to this fissiperiousness, this division within the liberal movement. And What's their approach instead? Well, according to the party chair, Nikolai Rybakov, there is no other choice now. In other words, they seem to be basing their entire electoral, and more than just electoral, let's say political appeal, on just the, you got no other options. Well, this is not, frankly, a particularly positive or encouraging vision. So I, th I think that this is the trouble. You know, when you feel in an entirely hopeless situation, and let's be perfectly honest, this regime has gone from postmodern hybrid authoritarianism with a bit of popular participation into full-on authoritarianism now. Well, in those circumstances, what you tend to get are either a drift into radicalism, 
well, nothing else works, so we will have to turn to, I don't know, terrorism or grassroots movements or whatever, or else adrift towards apathy and self-indulgence. Well, you can decide which one you think I'm suggesting Yablaka might be giving way to, and I think it's a shame. But looking at the other side of the political system, how about, you know, even if one puts aside Shoigu, could a non-ethnic Russian become president? And I think my answer would be possibly, I mean, it would be stacked against them, just as it would, frankly, ethnic minorities have the odds stacked against them in most political systems. I think it's highly, highly unlikely that you get anyone from the North Caucasus becoming president because they have a particular place in the sort of the folk demonology of, of Russians. And it's one of many, many reasons why those people who suggest that uh, Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya might be a successor, I think, are out and out insane. I mean, the number of people who hate and despise him, including from the people who will be expected to protect the new president, are such that he's out. But generally, as I said, I think people in the North Caucasus are, are regarded with a particular degree of, frankly, fear by many Russians. But on the other hand, I think other non-Russians perhaps could make it to the top, but they would have to demonstrate a capacity to, shall we say, cosplay Russian, to be able to conform to Russians' values, norms, to not be threatening. And I think this is, frankly, an area in which Shoigu was, was quite, quite brilliant. I mean, obviously, he had a long-term political career that gave him a relatively high degree of recognition and respect anyway. But particularly gestures like that time when he started entering Red Square for the Victory Day Parade. His car stops underneath the icon under the Spassky Tower. He stops and very demonstratively crosses himself. Now, of course, I'm not at all for a moment saying that, that was an act of hypocrisy. But nonetheless, as a spectacle, as of saying, look, I may come from Tuva, but nonetheless... I respect and conform to values of you know, Russian orthodoxy, which is quite central to Russian character and, and self-identity. I think it was really important. And so I think it's that question of demonstrating that you can act Paruski, you can act Russian style, I think is going to be the crucial thing. But nonetheless, I mean, that said, there is no one who is sort of clearly identified with a non-Russian ethnicity who is currently within uh, reaching, I think, range of the, of the top job. Now, and admittedly this does begin to touch more and more clearly on, on the war, given the degree to which the army recruits from poorer regions of Russia, which is worth noting are often, but not entirely, ethnically non-Russian, you know, can we expect discontent? Well, look, it is clear that certain regions, and the two that have been especially highlighted of late, Dagestan and Buryatia, where you have had particular casualties, precisely because these are particularly poor regions. And look, it's not just the Russian military. You know, if you look at the ethnic and regional uh, origins of so many armies today, I mean, it's clearly the army is the place you go when there are no other economic opportunities nearby. So, yes, it, it, it's going to be a, a sort of disproportionately distributed war. And that inevitably at some point will become a potential problem. 
Now, I know I do this a lot, but if I go back to the experience of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, because I think it's quite interesting. The Soviet war in Afghanistan, um, yes, there was definitely a a skewing, but the skewing was, shall I say, class-based, not ethnically based. In fact, you know, obviously, if anyone had any degree of, of cash, of pull, of blood, you know, the sort of influence uh, of the economy of favours, then you used it to make damn sure that your kid stayed out of the military, or if they have to do military service, wouldn't end up in Afghanistan. So it's a class-based thing. But actually, if one looks at the casualty breakdowns, because we didn't have, we don't have figures for the ethnic um, origins of all the soldiers who served. But I was able to find a breakdown by Republican ethnicity. And the interesting thing was actually it was pretty much consistent with the, the overall share within the Soviet population. But in many ways that didn't matter. Because this was a time, after all, of rising centrifugal forces within the Soviet Union and also burgeoning nationalism. Nationalism precisely as a way of pushing back against the Soviet state. And the thing that I encountered time and time again, and it doesn't matter if you're talking to Georgians or Lithuanians, a absolute conviction that their ethnicity was fighting and dying disproportionately much in Afghanistan. And in many cases, a belief that this was actually a deliberate policy of the Soviet leadership to bleed their particular ethnicity of its, you know, the flower of its young manhood and such like. So it wasn't true. But the point was, the notion became mobilised. The war became mobilised as an instrument for pushing a nationalist agenda that said, look, We must get out of this ghastly union because the Soviet leadership is essentially killing us with its wars and its stupid, needless, meaningless and unwinnable wars. So, look, one can obviously see the parallels with with the modern conflict in Ukraine. I mean, again, there is the chance that Russia will be able to bite off enough Ukraine that it will feel it can claim victory, but it's uncertain whether or not Russians themselves will consider that to be a victory. My big area of sort of interest here is that you actually have a genuine disproportion in casualties, which will make it all the more easy to mobilise. But on the other hand, the regions where it's likely to be mobilised tend to be politically marginalised ones. I mean, actually, you know, Ukraine was a really powerful force, not just in, say, the Baltic states, but particularly, sorry, no, say Ukraine. I mean, Afghanistan was a powerful force in the Baltic states, but also particularly in Ukraine. And that was a sort of a very strong thing, because, you know, Ukraine clearly was of vital interest if you were to try and hold the Soviet Union together. Dagestan, Buryatia and the others, they're not quite so central. So in some ways, I think it might be that, in fact, the, the federal centre will ignore this to a degree until it becomes too late. It will rely too much on what it is currently doing, which is basically trying to keep society atomised, keep people from being able to form coalitions or even to know that they need to form coalitions. So you have someone in your family who falls in Ukraine or comes back scarred and miserable or whatever else. And if you are unaware of just how many people are in the same situation, you just think it's bad luck. But on the other hand, once you realise that there's a family in 
the street next to you and another one just round the corner, that's when you begin to think that there's something bigger going on, but also that gives you some kind of a basis to begin to cohere. And from that, political movements are formed. So I think this is it. The, the, the system is relying on atomization, keeping people too afraid or too unable or too, or too ignorant of the facts to be able to talk more widely. If a family is grumbling around the kitchen table, the FSB doesn't matter, doesn't mind. It's when that family then starts grumbling to other families in the shops, in the you know, line waiting to pick up your kids from school, wherever else, that's when it becomes a problem. And I think the point is, because of the way that the casualties are clustering, that will make it harder and harder for the, the authorities to actually stop people from beginning to realise that, like it or not, they have a community of interests. So, yes, I think this will become a focus for discontent. And once it happens... Again, the experience of Afghanistan suggests that, in fact, it will become much, much bigger as a symbol than even the reality is. Because people will then, you know, once you realise that the state has been lying to you, whether by omission or commission, well, then you have a tendency to overcompensate the other way. And you might say, if the real casualties in your town were 100, and you were led to believe it was 10, well, once you realise that it's not 10 you're more likely to think it's a 1,000 instead of a 100. So I think this is something we, we definitely need to watch. And the more casualties there are, and let's be honest, if we see, well, even the continuing of the current soft mobilisation, but certainly, you know, if, if we see any new major offensives by either side, the casualties will go up, then the political challenges will increase. OK, moving on. One of the... Uh, Listeners raised Yekaterina Shulman's notion of this reverse cargo cult. Um, in other words, not, oh look, um, it's so much better somewhere else if we create the, the forms, the seemings of, 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 of their society, then we will gain the benefits. And you know, in, the, in the classic cargo cult sense, it was we, we build mock-up planes and all the goodies that planes bring will suddenly accrue to us. You know, just sort of a, a wonderful example of how thinking about how magic works and the notions of, of the laws of similarity and contagion clearly are kind of a, a human um, constant, regardless of where you are. Well, the reverse cargo cult is basically assuming that... Well, no, rather than paraphrasing it, let me actually put it in her words. Um, roughly translated from this is way back in 2010... She said it's a kind of reverse cargo cult, a belief that white people's airplanes are also made of straws and manure, but they're better at pretending that it isn't that. Whereas we, honest Aborigines, are just not as good at lying and pretending, and so there's a special pride in that. So, in other words, a belief that in fact, yes, we pretend to have Western-style institutions, parliaments and such like, and they're not real. But in fact, the West's institutions are also fake. They're just better fakes. And, I mean, that's an interesting angle because precisely it speaks to one of the key ways that this regime tries to influence public opinion and a sense that we can take pride in the fact that we are less effective as liars. 
So the question is really, you know, how far is this likely to affect foreign and domestic policy in the future? Well, look, foreign policy, I think its key thing is because it speaks to the degree to which, at least for a key group of people around Putin and probably Putin himself, they genuinely believe that the West is hypocritical when it talks about values and that Western democracy is essentially a manipulated sham. That it's not actually as if leaders are in any ways beholden to their electorates. Again, it's just that Western leaders have worked out better ways of manipulating their political systems. I mean, there's going to be a question about the American presidential elections and interference therein, which I'll be sort of coming to, to later, that very much kind of speaks to this. So, I mean, I think they'll, they'll still assume that basically you can make deals with foreign countries which may well be deeply ugly and, don't, and doesn't really matter. That there isn't a, a, a real constraint on the executive. So that, okay, you know, they're supporting Ukraine. Well, that's just purely just for, for cynical reasons of interest, largely because they're trying to constrain us and sort of humble us Russians. Um, but they don't really care about it. They don't really care about anything. They are every bit as self-interested and cynical as we are. Now, look, I'm certainly not going to be presenting the position that, in fact, Western politicians are men and women of outstanding moral stature in every case. But nonetheless, there are reasons why things are not quite as cynical as they make out. And I think that helps explain some of the catastrophic blunders we've seen in Russian foreign policy and... These will continue, because I don't see the uh, top Russian leadership as learning lessons. In terms of domestic politics, I think, again, this is going to be a, an absolutely crucial perspective, which is essentially to try and convince the Russians that democracy was always a farce, a sham. And, and as a result, the fact that, well, our democracy is, is clearly not that uh, democratic, well, no one should be bothered by that. No one should be surprised by that. No one should think that that's a problem for us. It is just the fact that, look, democracy doesn't work. And obviously, I mean, this speaks to, to the, the true authoritarians and those people who want to bring back a, a monarchy or whatever. But more broadly, it says it's not worth bothering about. Policy is made by the rich and the powerful. And when these titans clash, it's not a danger, it's not a safe place to be for ordinary mortals. And therefore, just get away from Olympus, live your life as best you can, accepting the fact that the gods are warring above you. Now, that's again a deeply cynical one, but it does speak to, again, a long term Russian, oh, no, what's the word really? Not tradition. But, you know, the theme that we have seen is precisely that, you know, authoritarian rule such that actually the safest thing for most people is just not to be noticed by the state. Apathy. Apathy is always one of the best aids of any authoritarian regime. And this is going to be a crucial way in which they try and encourage that apathy by saying, look, it's all a sham. Over there, over here, doesn't matter. So don't even bother trying. Don't think anything can be fixed by political activism, by civil society or whatever. Just live your life as best you can and acknowledge the realities of the situation. It's a rather depressing image. And therefore, I think we deserve a break. And certainly, I need some lemon tea. Back shortly. 
Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. And we're back, and I'm going to be looking more directly at foreign policy issues. And in particular, let me start with this question. In hindsight, was Putin more invested than I thought in the 2016 American presidential elections and in meddling thereof? Or is it just good PR for him to be seen as the sort of leader who can reach out a hand and affect things that happen in the States? Well, look, I'm still of the view that, first of all, the impact of any Russian meddling was actually relatively limited and certainly was in no way decisive on the effect of those elections. On the other hand, I mean, there clearly was meddling. And I think one, above all, has to realise what the purpose was. It is not, in my opinion, that the Russians thought that Trump could or would get elected. Again, my own experiences of talking to people, and admittedly these, these are not people who are, this is not Pashoshev or whatever, but nonetheless people within the Russian foreign ministry, one of whom said to be quite straightforwardly, look, the American establishment will not allow a Trump to be elected. And again, this speaks to that whole notion that they assumed that American politics was more stage managed, more controlled than it really is. But also, I don't really get the sense that they actually had expected that Trump would be that useful for them. Rather, it was that they were terrified of Hillary Clinton. They thought that Hillary Clinton would commit the United States to a campaign of quite possibly regime change in Russia, and they were just simply trying to create trouble for her. They thought that she was anointed because precisely that the elite had decided, and that therefore there was no question but that she would get elected. But they wanted to ensure that she had as many fires that she had to put out as possible, especially in those crucial first hundred days or so of an administration, which is your time to, as a new president to basically set the political agenda. So they were encouraging all kinds of different disruptive forces, left, right, gun rights, black rights, you name it, simply to basically create as, as disruptive a situation as possible. And in that respect, was Putin that invested in it? Well, yes and no. He was invested in it to the point where he clearly had charged his various minions with doing what they could to stir things up and, and disrupt United States politics and society, which ranges from the intelligence services through to Yevgeny Prigozhin and his troll farms through to whoever else wanted to jump on the bandwagon. And again, I think it's a classic example where sort of Putin gives the, the nod to some very, very broad-based policy and a whole variety of political entrepreneurs try and see how they can do something that seems to lead in that direction in the hope of being rewarded if they're successful. So, you know, is that investment? Or, yeah, it is to a degree, and that's what I've always felt. But on the other hand, absolutely, this whole fervid attempt to more or less make it out that sort of Trump was some kind of Siberian candidate and that Putin was behind him, look... Yeah, it, it absolutely benefits Putin. It absolutely benefits Putin to be seen as this grand geopolitical sort of villain 
able to, to influence politics and generally cause trouble for his enemies regardless. And this is the, one of the many, many ironies of the invasion in February, that by calling his own bluff, by leaning so much on traditional instruments of military force, and then failing to carry that through, Putin has also, I think, undermined his wider dark power reserves, that the degree to which he's able to mobilise just generally fear of him and Russia, a sense that they are so dangerous, so effective at uh, covert manipulation, that something needs to be done to assuage them, that in some ways they need to be bought off, to be blunt. Well, that too has declined as a result. I mean, generally, across the board, Russia's capacity to assert power abroad in anything other than the crudest senses of, for example, turning off gas taps, and even that is, is a powerful but shrinking asset. All of these things have, have been critically and crucially undermined by Putin's invasion. And again, that's one thing that uh, you know, he really is going to be held liable for. You know, even if you are an unpleasant Russian nationalist who doesn't care about the death and the dying in Ukraine, who doesn't care about the sovereignty of other nations, you do care about the fact that your country is now regarded as being that much weaker than ever before. Moving on to people who care or people who may not care, and certainly the cynicism of politics. The question is, why did Narishkin, head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, you know, a man of experience, certainly, fumble so badly his lines at the Security Council? You know, did he know that Putin's plans were bad and disastrous and just couldn't talk about it? Well, look, I'm not quite sure. I mean, obviously, there, there is a certain narrative going the rounds and if I were a cynic, I would suggest that actually it's people like Narishkin who would like to have somewhere the line out there that precisely he knew that they, this, was, this was going to end badly, but Putin wouldn't listen or whatever else. Um, yeah, may, maybe it's true. Look, certainly there were many people within the Russian elite and even people very close to Putin who must have known that there were serious flaws with his plan, with his whole concept of what Ukraine is, and his belief, and it seems to have been an absolutely genuine belief, that Ukraine would fold almost without a fight, and within two weeks it would be in Russia's hands, and the West would be presented with a fait accompli that it wouldn't really know how to deal with, and therefore would only deal with in, in rather token form. Massive assumptions. If they had pulled it off, we would have been hailing Putin as indeed that, that geopolitical mastermind. But fortunately, it didn't happen. So in these circumstances, why do I think Narishkin fumbled? Well, look, the honest answer is clearly, I have no idea. So this is entirely sort of supposition. I think the problem is, you know, if one looks at that format... It was, you know, it was the ultimate Dragon's Den or The Apprentice setup. One deeply critical sort of uh, authority figure literally looking down from his perch at his various uh, minions who were sort of sitting scattered around in, in, in lower chairs and then being expected to, uh, you know, go, go and say the right thing. And in fact, if I can mix my metaphors, you know, actually it wasn't so much... Uh, Dragon's Den, it was actually King Lear turning to his three daughters and basically expecting them to come up with some really hagiographic praise 
to be rewarded for. And I think in those circumstances, Narishkin, who, yes, is a competent political performer, but who wasn't entirely sure exactly what his lines were meant to be. Again, this is it. This is not something that they would have been given talking points necessarily beforehand. The way Putinism works is you are expected to know. You are expected to know what is in the boss's mind and then to perform accordingly. Narishkin clearly wasn't certain, and that created you know, a, a degree of chaos in his own presentation. And then, of course, once he started to go off script, off message, and Putin decided to start putting the boot in, then clearly he fell apart. Because, yes, this is a, a situation in which, actually, if you annoy and under-impress one man, then that is potentially catastrophic for your career. The stakes are extraordinarily high. I mean, it's not quite Stalinism or a Bond movie where actually the, the boss is going to press a button and you will fall through the floor into a pit of piranhas. But it's pretty much the next best thing. And I just think that was a level of stress that he, he wasn't able to, to deal with. And I think, it, it, above all, the importance of that is, first of all, that it tells us exactly how power works in Putin's circle these days. The man who once upon a time would have actually seriously listened to briefings and weighed other people's opinions now is convinced that he knows and therefore what he wants is just an exercise in sycophantic support for his own views and self-incrimination so that everyone is on record as having said, boss, you know, what you're thinking is precisely the right idea. So it, it's a valuable, if deeply disturbing, insight into the politics of Putin's court as of this current incarnation, shall we say, of the boss. Secondly, I think, though, it also shows us the degree to which there is still a huge difference between friends of Putin and minions of Putin. Narishkin, despite his long-term contacts and despite his attempts to big up his connections with Putin, is not a friend. I mean, he is a friendly crony, shall we say. But still, he doesn't have anything like the same degree of protection, and he knew it. And the final point I would make is, there has been no public rehabilitation of Narishkin. I mean, he's still in post, and every now and then he, he sort of pops up to, in, in, in some sort of interview or whatever. But we haven't seen you know, a one-to-one -one meeting between Putin and Nurishkin, for example, as far as I have seen. I mean, it may well be that it's happened, but they haven't seen fit to... You know, put out uh, pictures in the newspapers, and generally demonstrate that Narishkin still has Putin's trust. Um, Putin really is quite a bully, and therefore he's keeping Narishkin on a very, very short leash at the moment. Speaking of leaders, the question is, would the chain of command, presumably the military chain of command, sign up for essentially the mutual suicide pact that using nuclear weapons would be? And, I mean, again, let me start with the un unedifying admission that clearly I don't know. But I, I do feel this is one of the potential points where exactly Putin's authority might well hurriedly collapse. And I suspect on some level that Putin himself, who, whatever else his many, many flaws may be, I think has a kind of shrewd and instinctive grasp of his relationships with other people and how far he can push them. Well, I, I think actually we might well find that if he went to, especially not just one demonstrative tactical nuclear weapon, but anything more uh, extensive, 
that that is a point that might sort of very, very suddenly concentrate minds in the defence ministry, in the general staff, but also more broadly within the Russian elite. And that's one of the reasons why, and perhaps I'm just desperately looking for reasons to be optimistic, but that's one of the reasons why I actually think it's much less likely that we will see any kind of serious use of nuclear weapons, well, as if there's anything other than a serious use, um, because precisely it would create one of those moments in which people can no longer just keep their heads down, that they are either going to have to accede to something that is incredibly escalatory and dangerous or do something about it. So I, I feel that this helps explain why Putin actually is so frequently turning to nuclear weapons by hint or explicitly in his messaging is because exactly he's not going to use it so he might as well use the threat of it. What about the, the, the Russian Navy's goals in the war? Well, the cynical or the uh, glib answer would be to not get sunk at the moment. Um, more broadly, I think it, it's quite interesting that the Russians have to a large degree just simply you know, for a long time coasted on the assumption that the Black Sea was a Russian lake and that therefore they could deny Ukraine any kind of meaningful offensive operations there, but also use it for the strangulation of Ukraine's trade. And a lot of it is actually about economic warfare. Now we're actually seeing some degree of reversals. I mean, the frankly indefensible from the beginning chunk of rock that is Snake Island has once again returned to Ukrainian control, and that creates potentially the prospects for more channels whereby civilian ships could get to a Ukrainian port for grain or whatever else. What that does is it forces the Russians to rely not just simply on their presence as a terrible deterrent, but it raises the question, well, okay, are they actually now going to go after merchant shipping, actively do so? start sinking them, which they absolutely could if they wanted. But again, that would represent not just an escalatory move, but it would deny them the opportunity to claim that the prospects for famine in the global south, especially sub-Saharan Africa, are because of Western blockades and sanctions rather than Russian military act. I mean, absolutely, they would therefore not be able to get away with that claim. So I think in many ways, I'm not quite sure really what the Russian Navy can do other than provide a platform for launching long-range missiles into Ukraine and, uh, well, let's be honest, largely blowing up housing developments and so forth. So I think this is it. They, they, they have a strong, very strong naval presence there. But on the other hand, the Ukrainians have a strong anti-shipping force and one that is only going to get stronger as more modern weapons are provided. So the options for a naval assault, say, on Odessa, I think are vanishingly small now. The political and economic consequences of maintaining a blockade of Ukraine shipping will have to wait and see really on the results of the current discussion about uh, grain exports that are taking place in Istanbul. I have a sneaking suspicion the Russians will at the 11th hour find some excuse to walk away and claim, trying to claim that it's all the Ukrainians' fault. But anyway, you know, so, but even so, the, the, the political costs of maintaining a blockade are actually getting, getting more stark. So 
I'm honestly not sure really what role the Navy will play, as I say, apart from just simply shooting missiles from time to time. Okay, moving on to the last few questions. How far has the current turmoil in British politics got some kind of implication for Ukraine and the continuance of Britain's support for the conflict? My honest answer is I don't think it will have much of an impact at all. And perversely, it might even actually help the long-term prospects for support for Ukraine. Let me explain. Obviously, Boris Johnson had very much seized the high ground as a particularly ardent advocate of Ukraine's position. Now, a cynic would suggest that it was to a considerable degree in order to deflect attention from the, the domestic problems that frankly have brought him down. Said cynic might also note that there seemed to be a surprising correlation between particular crises at home and his personal visits to Ukraine or his phone conversations with Zelensky. But regardless, look, I mean, politicians do all kinds of things that may well have positive outcomes for deeply cynical personal reasons. So that's no big deal. Just uh, Boris Johnson is a a particularly uh, egregious example thereof. The thing is, though, that Boris Johnson was a a self-confessed cakeist. You know, his position on cake was to both have it and, and eat it. And my concern would be precisely about the long-term maintenance of Britain's position. I mean, Britain has, and I I think that we we can be very proud of this, you know, a track record of supporting Ukraine that goes back to before the invasion. There was Operation Orbital, the training programme. There's been the provision of some military kit again before the invasion. There was the willingness of the Royal Navy to move through Ukraine. Crimea's coastal waters to challenge Russia's uh, spurious and illegal claims to them. All of these things, and clearly that has been kicked up dramatically, and especially in terms of military assistance, the UK has been you know, obviously second to the United States because who else can, who can compete with the resources that America can throw at things? But you know, second to that, I think the, the UK has very much been, been leading the way. We've got uh, Ukrainian servicemen being trained here in the UK. We have all kinds of kit being sent over and so forth. This has a cost, though. And I think one of the big problems, and again, it's something that I, that I have sort of uh, invaded at in the past, is the degree to which actually too many Western governments have not really been open with their own publics, with their own electorates, crucially, Firstly, about just how long this conflict is likely to be, and secondly, how expensive it is likely to be. This is war. Let's not kid ourselves. The West is at war with Russia. It's a very 21st century war. It's, well, I could say, it's the kind of war I discuss in my book, The Weaponization of Everything, soon to be out in paperback as well. Anyway, it's that kind of a 21st century war that is fought through economics and politics and culture and law, rather than directly shooting, for which thank God, but nonetheless it is a war and it is one that is likely to grind on for quite some time with with serious costs. And for me the best example is Boris Johnson quite recently announced an additional £1 billion worth of military assistance for Ukraine. Well, essentially put very crudely, £1 billion can also build two brand new hospitals in the UK. And this is the issue, There, there will come a point where in the UK as elsewhere, 
The population may well still be deeply supportive of the Ukrainians and their case. But on the other hand, is also sitting there thinking, times are hard. We haven't properly recovered from COVID. We have an economic downturn. We have a crisis in public services. We want, for example, new hospitals and all kinds of other things. And so they might not be drawing a direct connection, but they will be punishing the incumbents in office for not spending more money at home or indeed cutting taxes or whatever else they, they want to do. Now, Boris Johnson's approach was very much to take the immediate short-term option and, if need be, hope that you can bluff, charm and lie your way through whatever the consequences are. If we look at the current spread of candidates to become the next leader of the Conservative Party and thus the Prime Minister, we've got to remember, for those of you who are not in the UK, the British system is parliamentary, not presidential. When people vote in the general election, they are voting for a specific member of parliament and a party. They're not voting for a prime minister. And yes, in, in practice, clearly, the, the, who the party leader is has a massive impact. You know, but that's actually not what the constitutional system is. So basically, the Conservatives will remain in office so long as the Conservatives have a parliamentary majority, but they can change their leader. Anyway, all, all the, the, the various candidates and the current front runners are the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, the current Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, and the sort of the party's choice in the country, but not necessarily in Parliament, Penny Mordaunt, former Defence Secretary. None of the candidates represent any kind of particular policy break with what's actually going on. And indeed, some of the candidates who are more the outsiders, people like Tom Tugendhat, the uh, very able chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament, you know, actually have a very strong uh, personal commitment to, to this conflict and know what they're talking about. But generally speaking, this is much more... I mean, although, look, there, there are some candidates whom I regard with a little bit more disdain and horror than others. I won't necessarily go, in, go into that now. But broadly speaking, these are all adults. These are all going to be committed to continuing the conflict, but they might also be more able or more willing to actually level with the British public about the costs in the name of trying to create some kind of public consensus to keep the money flowing. Because that's the whole point. From Putin's point of view, I suspect that his strategy is attrition. Not just attrition on the battlefield against Ukraine, but attrition against the West. That he thinks ultimately he his system have more will, and that that is their strategic advantage. That basically they can outlast us, and after a certain point, we will be thinking, look how much money we're pouring into Ukraine, not just in military support, but also in financial support. And it's noteworthy that both the European Union and the Americans have actually frozen some of their financial support, precisely because they're concerned about, well, to put it very bluntly, too much of it might get stolen in Ukraine. But, you know, one way or the other, Putin's assumption is that eventually we will decide to scale back or stop our support for Ukraine, at which point Ukraine will no longer be able or willing to resist Russia. So in that respect, I think having a grown-up leader who is committed to maintaining support for Ukraine, but also is willing and able to actually articulate to their own electorate why this is important. And yes, why this does mean cost in the short term. 
But that's because we are at war, whether we like it or not, and wars have costs, actually might make it easier to maintain in the long term the level of support for Ukraine. You know, Boris Johnson, all very good sound and fury, but to be blunt, his, the experience has demonstrated that he will throw anyone and anything under the bus if need be to try and hold on to his position. And if there came a position in the future, a situation in the future, in which actually he had to make a choice between his career and Ukraine, we think know what he would have done. So my sense is that uh, depending on who becomes the next prime minister, the relationship with Zelensky in Ukraine may be a little bit less personal, but politically, absolutely, the current policy will be maintained. And actually, it might even be maintained longer and more effectively than it might have been under Boris Johnson. It's worth noting, by the way, Penny Mordaunt, for certain, has taken a Ukrainian refugee into her home. I'm honestly not sure if any of the others have. Quite possibly so. In which case, they can let me know and I will put the record straight. And very, very finally, it's a huge question. And therefore, in some ways, either I would have to spend an hour answering it, or a minute, and it's going to be closer to the minute. What needs to be done to make Putin stop? <laughs> Let me be blunt. I think unless we are really willing to commit ourselves to some kind of regime change option or whatever, which I absolutely do not think we should, whatever John Bolton may say, this is not an easy project, and actually our track record is that we're disastrously counterproductive. Instead, I think the honest answer is there is no quick and easy way to make Putin stop. We are doing, basically speaking, the right things. Now, there are all kind of aspects of policy I would like to change, particularly in terms of actually also reaching out to the Russian public, trying to undermine Putin's legitimacy and narrative with them, perhaps even also encouraging the sort of further deepening of the brain drain that is an absolute problem for Russia by seeing how many more of the best and the brightest Russians we can seduce away. But otherwise, I mean, essentially, what we are doing is what we have to do. We are supporting Ukraine in its battle for its own independence. We are constraining Russia in its attempts to expand its sphere of influence. We are slowly grinding away at Russia's economy, and particularly its high-tech sector, its capacity to be able to rebuild its military. It's quite interesting that I heard the other day the Italian police had intercepted a shipment of sort of microchips that are useful for drones and such like, that was, I think, um, technically meant to be headed for Qatar, but they had a strong suspicion that it was, in fact, headed for Russia. We're going to see more of this. Attempts to bypass the sanctions by criminal means, smuggling and such like, precisely because these sanctions, for all Putin is saying, are having an impact. They're not going to bring down the country. They're not going to shatter the economy. But on the other hand, the ability of the Russians to replenish the missiles and the, the precision weapons that they're using so profligately in Ukraine is absolutely being, being undercut. And the, sec the threat of secondary sanctions is encouraging all kinds of other countries not to make the sorts of deals with Russia that would help them. You know, it's striking that the Russians are talking to the Iranians about buying drones, which is, you know, makes sense from both the Russians and the Iranians' point of view. 
However, I can't help feeling that in part the Iranians are doing this, not because they necessarily want to make a, a drone deal with Russia, though I'm sure they're fine with doing so, but as a reminder to Washington, you, know, you are currently making deals with all kinds of former pariah states, or at least offering deals to them, would be Tehran's message. You know, you're, you're trying to pally up with the Saudis now because you want them to pump more oil. You're tr actually trying to get closer to the Venezuelan regime, which you consider to be little more than a bastion of the Antichrist in Latin America. But now, precisely because you want to reduce Russian alliances and also get your hands on more oil, suddenly you're willing to, to talk to them. Well, what about us, says Tehran? Where's our sweeteners? Where's our deals? So I think for all these reasons, actually, this is going to be a real problem. We are doing the right things. It would be wonderful if there was something that could stop the civilians dying tomorrow. If there was something that could actually free ordinary Russians from the yoke of this increasingly tyrannical regime. Unfortunately, as I say, I, I think that this is a case in which more accelerated solutions would actually end up being worse than the status quo, however terrible that status quo really is. So what needs to be done? Essentially, we hold our nerve, hold our will, and keep up the good fight. And that's not exciting, and that's probably not the answer that uh, said listener was hoping for. But I'm afraid it's the best I've got. And there, on that uh, admission of failure to be able to sort of pull out of my hat some, some grand strategy to resolve the problem by next Thursday, I will surrender to the realities and end this episode. Thank you, as ever, for listening. And particularly thank you to those of you who sent in questions. I, I've answered most of them. Some got rolled into other questions. Some got put aside because I'm planning on doing actually a full segment on the topic. And some I felt I'd already covered. But nonetheless, I appreciated them all. And I suppose the final thanks ought to be, if you heard them, the, to the parakeets right outside my kitchen window who decided that this was the point at which they wanted their views on Russian politics relayed to the outside world. So, thank you everyone. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.